This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com. Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Letter number 16, page 285. Most of these letters deal with tzedakah, with charity. The Alter Rebbe strongly believed in the power of tzedakah. It was the cure-all for everything that's ailing us materially and spiritually through charity. And uh, he practiced what he preached. Alter Rebbe himself Whatever he had, he gave away, and he sheared, and he encouraged his Hasidim, his followers, to do the same. And this particular letter was written to a particular community. It begins to the members of the community, and we omit the name of the community because it's not really important, but he's talking to a particular community that we're not meeting their quota. We're not capable of meeting their quota. You know, every community took upon themselves to support the Hasidim in Israel, the Jews in Israel who could not support themselves financially and they were dependent on the tzedakah of the Jews of Eastern Europe. And this particular community could not keep up with their commitment. Why? Because they themselves were destitute. The economy was bad. Even in the best times it was bad. Imagine things turned to, to the worse. And they couldn't, they can barely survive themselves. And therefore they cut in their tzedakah for the, these communities in Israel. Dr. Rebbe is writing a letter to this particular community. And he's encouraging them not to cut their tzedakah, their participation, despite their situation. So it's a very, a very powerful letter. It's a call for action to a community that's in desperate situation. And yet, Alter Rebbe is encouraging them to continue giving on the same level that they gave when things were better, things were looking up. Yeah. Beloved, my brethren and friends who are to me like my own soul, certain qualities are uniquely found in the closeness and love of brothers and other qualities in the warm devotion of friends. In writing, my brethren and friends, the Alter Rebbe indicates that his letter wells from both kinds of brotherhood. There's a love in the relationship, like siblings, between siblings, brothers, siblings, and then there's a relationship amongst friends. The difference is that the sibling relationship is a very natural, calm, smooth, dependable relationship. 
It's unconditional love. Never changes. There's no peaks. There's no valleys. There's no ups. There's no downs. It's not a tumultuous, fiery love. It's like a water. It's very calm. Versus the love between friends can be tempestuous. You discover it's a novelty. It's creative friendship. And you can fall out of that friendship. And so there's an advantage in each, each, each type of love. Like a difference between the love between siblings and the love between, uh, between husband and wife. Which is like a fiery love versus a love that's like water. It's calm. So Alter Rebbe is addressing the Hasidim. He says, you're both like my brothers and friends. In other words, every type of, de- uh, of endearment, every type of closeness, with all the advantages of this type of closeness, that type of closeness, that's how the Alter Rebbe felt towards this community, towards this Hasidim. And he says, like my soul, like I love myself, like my own soul. So he's not writing as a stranger. It's not the Alter Rebbe is wagging his finger and is rebuking. And He says, I'm talking to my brother. I'm talking to my best friend. I love you like I love myself. Whatever I'm telling you, I'm telling myself. And whatever I'm asking you to do, I do myself. So hear me out. Because I'm coming from a loving place. And my critique is, it's all coming from a good place. So hear me out. Because he's making very harsh demands on them. It could seem to be like he's making very harsh demands. But I'm not a stranger. I'm talking to you like I would talk to myself. I'm talking to my brother. So I can be honest with you. Let me tell you the truth. And you can hear it. You can listen to this critique. And, and most importantly, you can respond to it and active, act on it. And do as I'm, I'm requesting you. The hardships of these times are not hidden from me, and that the means for earning a li- livelihood have declined, especially among those known to me from the community whose hands have faltered, so that they are without any providers at all, with no work available for either husband or wife, and they literally borrow in order to eat. They don't have a penny to their name, no savings, and even have to borrow just to make ends meet. In other words, they don't even have, they don't have, uh, even have anything to pawn or whatever. They don't have anything to, they have to borrow. Oh, maybe they can pawn, they have to borrow to eat. So we're talking about survival. Scrapping to survive, to put bread on the table, where the next meal is coming from. May Hashem show them compassion and speedily bring them respite from their straits. Nonetheless, they are not acting rightly unto their souls. According to reports that they closed their hands, which all their life long to this very day has been open to give with a full hand and a generous eye for all vital necessities to satisfy the need. Generous eye, someone who gives more than just, there's a person who gives, and he gives with a full hand, but when you have a generous eye, it somehow expands. The gift expands. You give, you give even more. And he says, who are the recipients? The recipients are those who are poor, destitute, and clean. Clean is an expression in, in, the, in the Talmud. Someone who walks away clean, cleansed 
from all his possessions. <laughs> He's clean from any possession. When it comes to checking for chametz and Pesach, it's no problem. He doesn't have chametz all year round. Doesn't, he can't find the crumb or bre- drop of bread. He literally doesn't have a slice of bread to his name. Someone who's clean from everything. His bank account is clean. His balance is clean. He doesn't have a penny to his name. He's referring to the Jews in Israel. The Jews in Israel were so poor and so destitute because there was no means of a livelihood. There was no commerce there. There was, no, there was nothing there. There was no business. There was nothing. So they were clean from anything. Meaning they didn't even have anything to pawn off, to borrow money. Even to borrow money, you have to have something to borrow. You have to give a guarantee. guarantee. You, have to, you have to put up a guarantee. They don't even have anything. They're clean. They're clean from anything. They have nothing. They don't even have the possibility of even borrowing money. They're so destitute. Whose lives are lifted unto us. This refers to the destitute of Eretz Yisrael, who had absolutely no means of support other than the charitable fund of the Kolel Chabad. If we will not pity them, heaven forfend, who will? So we are the only ones. The Jews in Eastern Europe at the time were their only source of hope. There was no one else. No one else was coming to the rescue. There was no one. So he says, we, if we don't step up to the plate, they're going to starve. Starve to death. Literally. There's no backup plan. There's no plan B. This is it. We are plan A, B, and C. See, all these years, you came through for them. And now you're going to leave them hanging? Let them starve. So the other said, I know your situation. And I empathize with you. And I'm crying with you. But don't do, use that as an excuse to diminish your support, your annual support that they came to rely on and depend on. And now he's going to counter the argument. Well, wait a minute. There's an argument to be made based on Torah. And the Torah says that my life comes first. The classical example given in the Talmud, we learned it, Bab Metziah, attracted Bab Metziah, Nazel Neshech, that if two people are traveling in the desert, and they only have enough water for one. One is going to drink and live, and one is going to and one is going to die. So there's an argument. Then Petura, I believe, is the one who says, "Let them split it, let them both die." Rabbi Akiva, the great lover of Jews, who said, love your fellow Jew like yourself, this is the great rule in the Torah, he says, the great principle, your life comes first. If it's a question of life and death, the question of your life, yes, you have to love your fellow Jew like yourself, but in order to love your fellow Jew like yourself, first, there has to be a self. If you don't exist, how can you love your fellow Jew like yourself? You have to exist. So you, the individual, comes first. Your life comes first. If I don't exist, I can't love my fellow like myself. So in that case, it's your water. You you don't have to share the water. You drink the water, you live, and your friend dies. 
Because the Torah says, your brother should live with you. Meaning with you. First there has to be a you. And then you can help someone else. You know those people, uh, codependents, they live for others, they have no life of their own. That's not loving and that's not kind. It's, it's, it's sickness. It's a dysfunction. If there's no self, then you have nothing to give. There's no self. Who, who are you? Then it's not about helping another person. Then it just becomes being a crutch and dependent. And it, it creates sickness. It creates illness. It doesn't create anything healthy. Healthy relationships are based when there's two independent individuals who have a life, who have an existence. They don't, you know, they don't martyr themselves for others and they have a healthy, healthy sense of self and they love another person. They have something to give to another person and then they add, they create positive energy to another person. So you can't love another person if, you, if there's no center of you yourself, don't exist. People confuse martyrdom and, and uh, you know, codependency with, with love and kindness and goodness. It's the exact opposite of it. Rabbi Kiva says... You can't love another person if you don't love yourself. If you're not taking care of yourself, then you're not helping the other person. <laughs> you're not giving them anything. Look, in this case, the martyr will say, we'll both, we'll split it in half. What's going to happen? We're both going to die. Okay, really? That really helped me. <laughs> well, what did you accomplish? What did you do? You make, it's, it's, not a healthy, it's not a healthy response. It's, it looks like, oh, it's a selfless, I'm being selfless, I'm martyring myself, I'm codependent, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm a shmata, I'm a doormat, step all over me, I'm so selfless. It's not, that's not coming from a healthy place. It's actually a very dysfunction. It creates negative energy. And the person, the codependent needs, is more sick than the person that they're enabling. You have to help people, treat people with respect and with dignity. And you can't treat people with dignity if you don't treat yourself with dignity. So if, you, if you're not alive, if you're not ta- Rabbi Kiva, the great lover, says, love your fellow Jew like self is a great rule in the Torah, says, wait a minute, but there has to be a self. If there's no self, what, what are you giving the other person? So you have to take care of yourself, first and foremost. You come first. When you have a self, then I can take care of someone else. I'm in a position to help someone else. Then my job and my mission is to take care of someone. I can only take care of someone if, 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 if I'm in a position to help someone. That's why children don't get married. Because children can't give. Children can receive. They can't give. A person who's an emotional child, who's an emotionally, psychologically like a child, because years, our years are not measured in the passport. You have a 90-year-old, but emotionally, mentally, and psychologically, the person never grew up. If a person, how could you give, how can you take care of another person if there's no self? You can't take care of yourself. So the foundation has to be, there has to be a very healthy individual. And then I'm in a position to give another person, to give him, and then I give it in a dignified way, in a respectful way, and again, I don't enable the other person. Then I, ma- I give the other person, I make the other person self-sufficient. Then my giving is also healthy, with boundaries, with limits. I don't let them step over me and I don't step over them. But it all begins when there's a self. 
This is a very critical, and it's Rabbi Kiva is the one who's teaching us. Rabbi Kiva has taught us about selflessness, that this is so important in Judaism, we've got to be selfless. But God forbid not to become a shemata, not to become codependent. To, 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 that people confuse that. It's very confusing. People think, oh, they martyr themselves. They're so selfless. And it's sickness. It's, not, it's dysfunction. It's not healthy. It's, it's completely backfires. The exact opposite effect. So how do I know if it's healthy? When you have one cup of water, take care of yourself. And if you say, oh, I'm nobody, I'm nothing, let me help the other person. You're so sick, you can't help anyone. <laughs> That's the criteria. You have to help yourself. I worry about the whole world. First, take care of yourself. If you have to take care of yourself, then I can worry about the world. Then I, I, my mission is I can help another person, I can give another person in a healthy way, in a respectful way, in a, in a wholesome way that enhances me and enhances the other person. Dignified way. So therefore, since the law, and that's the law, the law follows Rabbi Akiva, since the law states that my life comes first, so this community could argue, wait a minute, we are also poor. We have to take care of ourselves first. What the Alter Rebbe is demanding that this city should step up to the plate and they shouldn't uh, diminish their annual contribution. You yourself uh, admit that we can't even, we, build, we can't even, we have to borrow to put bread on the table. We, don't, we can't even make ends meet. I can't even feed my wife and children. So you're telling me I should worry about a community in Israel? And I should take away from my bread and bread and help another person? Doesn't this contradict this whole concept of you have to, your brother should live with you, your life comes first, my life comes first. Charity begins at home. I have to first take care of myself and my family and my community before I worry about the whole world. That's the question Alter Rebbe is now going to address. And it is written, so that your brother may live with you. For example, one should share with his brethren even that which is most essential for one's own life. As the ruling of the sages that your own life takes precedence, this applies only in a case when one has a pitcher of water in hand. The traveler in the desert has just enough water to sustain his own life until civilization is reached. And if he shares it with his friend, they will both inevitably die. Then his own life takes precedence. That is when it, it is equally essential that both drink in order to save their lives from thirst. So that's he's giving the answer. He says, when does the Talmud say, when does Rabbi Kiva say, and this is the halach, this is the final ruling, that your life comes first. He's talking about if it's equal, apples to apples. Both of you are going to die. Both of you need a cup of water. There's only one cup of water. Who gets the cup of water? So the law states, you get the cup of water, your life comes first. Your responsibility is to take care of yourself. The only life that you can live is your own life. And the only one life you're responsible ultimately is your own life. If you take care of yourself, then you also have a responsibility. I can take care of another person. But you can't take care of another person if there's no self. But that's true if, it's you, if the choice is clear, me or him. But what if it's a question, if it's not an equal choice? If it's a question whether I get to live in luxury and my fellow Jews starves to death, 
then you don't say, my life comes first. My life comes first. Where do you draw the line? My life comes first. First, I have to have a house in Park Avenue, and the most expensive. Then I have to have a house in East Hamptons, the most expensive. Then I have to have a house in the Riviera, the most expensive one. And then I have to have my yacht. And then I have to have my plane. And then I have to have my island. I have to have my name and my plaque and my names up here and there. And then, if I have anything extra, I'll throw the poor person a little money so he won't starve to death. My life comes first. I have to look out for number one. I have to look out for myself. No, that's, not, that's not what Rabbi Kiva said. That's not what the Talmud said. When the Torah says your life comes first, talking about when it's literally your life or his life. Apples the apples. But if it's a question of you living in luxury and luxus and excess and your friend starving to death, freezing to death because he can't afford a little wood to light a fire, that's not, that's not. Then your life doesn't come first. But if a copper needs bread for the mouths of babes and firewood and clothes against the cold and the like, then only take precedence over any fine apparel and family feasts with meat and fish and all kinds of delicacies for oneself and all of one's household. This is a, uh, one of the hymns that people sing on Shabbat. He's quoting the language. That um, so, if a person is is you know is barbecuing and having parties and eating in the, with great luxury, meat and fish and all kinds of delicacies, then you can't say my life comes first. Let my fellow Jew die from starvation, freeze to death, because I have to take care of myself first. That's not. Then the Torah's rule applies. You. Your brother should live with you. You have a responsibility. And you're in a position. Because your life is taken care of. You have what you need. You have your necessities. Is this a necessity? This excess, is this a necessity? It's not a necessity. So how, what right do I have not to help out and not to give? God put me in a position to be a giver. You put me in a position to provide and to take care of my fellow and someone who was literally about to die and I can save his life. God gave me, put me in a position I can save his life. Instead, I'm going to use it on myself for excesses and luxuries that are completely unnecessary. I can completely live without. Then it doesn't apply. Then you don't say, my life comes first. I have to take care of myself. The rule that your own life takes precedence does not apply in such a case because these are not really essential to life as are the needs of the poor in true equality as is discussed in Nedarim's page 83. This is what the Talmud states clearly. The Talmud discusses if there's a stream, water, a town needs water and there's another town that wants to use the water. So if the town that owns the water needs it to live, to drink, basic necessities, then they come first. Obviously, it's their water, and they don't have to share their water with the, with the, with the nearby town. 
Or if they needed to wash their clothes and their nearby town also wants to use the same water to wash their clothes. Of course, they come first. But if it's a question that they need the water to wash their clothes, but the nearby town needs the water to live, to survive, then the nearby town takes precedence. Your luxuries do not override the basic necessities. And our responsibility to provide and to help. My brother should live with me to help someone in need if I'm in a position to help them. This is called I'm in a position to help them. Depriving myself of laundry water and to enable the nearby town to have drinking water to live, the drinking water takes precedence. The Gemara speaks there about a stream that originates in one town and flows through another. If it does not provide enough drinking water for both towns, the water rights belong to the inhabitants of the first town. The same applies to the water that both towns need for their livestock or for washing the clothes. If, however, the second town needs drinking water for its citizens, while the first town only needs the water for washing clothes, then the needs of the second town prevail. We thus see that if the respective needs are not exactly equal, then one does not say one's own life takes precedence, even in a situation where one's own needs are quite real and far from frivolous. Right? To wash clothes is not exactly frivolous. <laughs> to have clean clothes. Nevertheless, since the other town needs it to survive, to live, they take precedence. When fathers and mothers are crying out for bread for their little ones and for firewood and clothing to protect them from the cold. This surely takes precedence over the valid, but not essential needs of one's own family. Okay, this is a very clear-cut point. There's nothing to discuss. It's, it's halacha. It's, it's clear. Now he's going to discuss that he's going to make, even in the case where you can argue... It's not so clear-cut. Because the first, the town that he's addressing, you can argue, they're so destitute, they have to borrow to live. They are also fighting for survival. It is apples to apples. Yes, maybe they're not as destitute as the other, as the Jews in Israel, because they could borrow. The Jews in Israel can't even borrow. They have no one to borrow from, and they have nothing to, uh, to put out as a collateral. The pawn. They at least have something to pawn. So that's the difference. They're completely destitute. They're clean from anything. You're destitute, but you're not clean. You can still pawn this and pawn that. You can still finagle. You can still manage to borrow money. But you can argue, but that means I'm completely destitute. I'm, I'm, I'm still destitute. So halachically, you can't say that this town, Alter Rebbe is saying, even if you can argue that halachically, you're not obligated to support the Jews in Israel because you're way down there. You're as impoverished as it, as it comes. Destitute. Nevertheless, Alter Rebbe is now going to present five arguments to this community why even in such a situation he's still asking of them and demanding of them that they should live up to their annual quota. They should not limit or minimize their annual quota of tzedakah. He's going to make five strong arguments. <laughs> Not one argument, five strong arguments. 
why they should continue giving in the same level that they gave even when times were good. The above follows the exact requirements of the law. In fact, however, even in the case where such reasoning does not so fully apply, i.e. even when a one is called upon to share not luxuries but one's own slice of bread, or even when b the poor are not crying out for food and clothing but for other... Let's say the Jews in Israel had a piece of bread to eat and they had uh, one shmata to wear. But still, they, 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 they need basic essentials. So you can't argue it's life and death for them. The case in the Talmud is talking about they need drinking water. To die from, from thirst is the worst, cruelest type of death. A community needs to drink and you need to wash your clothes. So you walk around with dirty clothes, but they're going to live. So of course we can understand in that case. But here, let's say the Jews in Israel have a piece of bread to put on the table. To live, you need a piece of bread and a, and a cup of water. You don't need much more. But that's not a life. They need this. But all the other basic essentials they don't have. So halachically you can say, listen, I'm not obligated to make myself crazy. To help them live. I mean, they, they, they can live. They're not going to die. So to make the life, to give them other essentials. Why do, when I'm struggling for my essentials, I'm not obligated to take care of their, of their essentials when I'm struggling for my essentials. So the halachic requirement doesn't apply. Nevertheless, Alter Rebbe says, let's go beyond the halacha. Let's go beyond the letter of the law for a moment. Let's not discuss obligation, not obligation. I'm appealing to you to go beyond the letter of the law. And I'm going to give you five reasons why you should go beyond the letter of the law. Five compelling reasons. Reason number one. So it is not proper that any man insist on the letter of the law. Rather, he can impose austerity on his own life and go far beyond the demands of the letter of the law. Moreover, one should be concerned for his own sake with the teaching of our sages of blessed memory that even in a situation where that which is yours takes precedence over that which belongs to others, he who is exacting in this matter and does not go beyond the letter of the law will eventually be brought to this matter. He himself will ultimately need charity, heaven for So the Talmud says, and this is brought down in Halacha, we have a mitzvah to, if you find a lost object, your fellow Jew lost his object, lost something, you have an obligation to return the object. Now, this law is not only if he lost the object, but even if he's about to lose the object, and you have the power to save him, for example, there's a, there's a flood. They're predicting a flood. And his house is about to be flooded. And once he's flooded, he's going to lose his house. He's going to lose hundreds of thousands of dollars. You have an obligation to help him. Make, prepare sandbags and prepare a dam that will hold back the water so he won't even come to a loss. If you can stop the loss in the first place, the obligation to return a loss is not only after the fact. How much more so before the fact? Make sure you shouldn't even come to, the, to being a loss in the first place. However, there's no financial obligation. I don't have to spend money. I have to help him out physically. But I do not have to go and pay that my friend should not have a loss. And therefore, if a person works for a living, he says, listen, I'm going to take off from my job and I'm going to help him prepare sandbags. I'm going to lose my livelihood. I'm, I'm, I'm working for a living. I can't just... I'm doing business. I can't just leave my business behind. That's going to cost me money. 
I'm not obligated. So the Talmud says, yes, you're right, you're not obligated. But don't be such a stickler. Don't be so exact. Don't be so careful. Suddenly you become very careful. The law says I'm not obligated. I follow the law. I'm a man of the law. I don't violate the law. I do exactly to the letter of the law. Someone says, relax. Don't be so exacting. Don't be so, such a law person. Don't be so a person of Suddenly you become a person of the law. No, you can cheat a little. <laughs> the law says you don't have to. You can stretch a little. Stretch the law. Stretch interpretation. Do it anyway. Or another example, also in a relation to the lost and found. If a, there are exceptions to this obligation to restore your fellow Jew, to restore his lost object. If it's a case where if it was your object, you wouldn't pick it up in the street. You would be embarrassed. Let's say you're a dignified person. You're a judge in the community. You're the mayor, the president. If you find a lost object, a lost, would, you, would you start carrying bags in the middle of the streets? It's just not dignified. You wouldn't do it even for your own object. So therefore, you're not obligated to do for your friend what you wouldn't do for yourself. So if it's not below your dignity and you wouldn't do it, then you, there's no mitzvah. You can, you can leave it alone. You don't have to touch it. And again, Talmud says, don't be so exacting. You know, you can, be, you can err. You can err in the side of, don't be so cautious. You know, earn the side, maybe I should do it. I'm not sure, I'm exempt. Maybe I should do it. Because a person who's very exacting and follows the letter of the law, you know, God is interactive. God will reciprocate. You follow the letter of the law. God says, okay, let me examine you. I'm going to examine you down to the, to the umpteenth level. I'm going to follow the law. Do you, do you deserve this blessing that I, I want to give you? I'm not sure, according to the law, the law states, I have to be very exact. You're exact, you're a man of the law, you don't bend the law, you don't, you're very precise. I'm also going to be very precise with you, like a laser. You're not going to get a penny more than you deserve. And, and once the heaven takes a close look at us, it's a pretty sad situation. You know, we hope that they don't look too closely, and they fudge things a little, and things are a little fuzzy, and vague, and nebulous. So it depends how you look at it. If you treat your fellow Jew like that and you look a little vague and nebulous and you're not so exacting in the law, you know, God will say, you know what, I don't see so well, I don't see, you know, we can, we can go beyond the letter of the law. So that's what he's saying. When you have a Jewish community that's struggling with their basic necessities, okay, even if, even if they're not going to die, yes, maybe they can put together a slice of bread, but they're struggling for their basic, basic, basic necessities. And suddenly you become so exact and proper and precise. Well, I'm not obligated. You become a scholar. You take out the books and the Torah says I don't have to and the Torah says I don't have to. Don't, don't be so conservative in this case. Don't be so precise. Be a little liberal. Be a little generous. Be a little not so exact. And then Hashem will treat you in kind. Because if you, the Talmud says, if you are precise, you're right. You're not wrong. But heaven will also be right <laughs> when they're exact with us. And suddenly we find ourselves impoverished and destitute. And we lose our objects. And we'll see how we like it when no one is around to help us. Because we were so proper. And everyone will be proper with us as well. So what you put in in life is what you get. No deposit, no return. It's like a bank. Whatever you put in, that's what you're going to withdraw. You put in generosity. You put in kindness. You put in goodness. When your time of need will be there for you. 
It'll be a rainy fund. You'll be able to withdraw. But if you don't put in and everything is exact, you'll be left hanging dry. So that's one compelling reason, one compelling argument out there that is telling the people, yes, by law you're right, you don't have to. But don't be so... Don't follow the law so precisely. Don't be so firm. Don't be so religious all of a sudden and follow the exact letter of the law. That's argument number one. Now, argument number two. And after all, all of us need the mercies of heaven at all times, which are elicited only through an arousal from below at all times and at every moment by arousing our compassion for those who are in need of compassion. But whoever hardens his heart and suppresses his compassion for whatever reason causes the same above. Here he's saying, he's giving another argument, another compelling argument, because the first argument was that be careful for your future. If you're going to be so exacting today, you're going to follow the letter of the law now, it may come to haunt you, it may come to bite you in the future. And it may affect your livelihood. Now he's saying, wait a minute, we don't have to look to the future. We need Hashem's mercy now, today. And not only in regarding our parnas, our livelihood. We need Hashem's mercy regarding our health. Every moment that we're alive and we exist and things go well for us, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an astonishing miracle. And we need Hashem's mercy all the time. And we are being judged all the time and every day. So we need all the help we can get. We need all the mercy we can get. We need all the, anyone who puts in a good word, we need all the prayers, all the help. So is this how you want to start acting? You want to start acting so judgmental and so, um, you know, it's a time to have mercy. Mercy is you go beyond the letter of the law. Because if we'll have mercy on others, Hashem will have mercy on us. Because God is interacting. The way we treat others is exactly the way He treats us. So if we treat others, even if they don't deserve, and even if I'm not obligated to, and even if, but nevertheless I treat them with mercy and compassion, and I give way beyond the letter of the law, Hashem will treat us in kindness as well. That when we come up for judgment, which is every moment and every minute and every day, Hashem will have mercy. He doesn't deserve it, but you know, give it to him anyway. By law, he doesn't deserve it, but you know what? Let's give him health, let's give him life, let's give him existence, let's give him success. So it's important when a person knows how dependent we are on the mercy of heaven at all times, and we know that it all depends on our behavior. Because we, sm- we smile, God smiles, God is like our shadow. So however we're behaving right now, that's exactly the way Hashem will reciprocate and behave to us. So it's a time to have Rachmanas. But a person who closes his heart and shuts his heart, his brother and sister are crying. I can't provide for my family, I can't provide them for their basic needs. And you shut your heart, you say, listen, it's not my business, I have to take care of myself, I have to take care of my family. And... You know, the person who comes to the rabbi, the rabbi has a discretionary fund. He says, Rabbi, he starts sobbing. He says, you have to help this poor woman, this poor widow. She has four little children. She can't pay her rent. Her landlord is about to throw her out. If she doesn't come up with the money, please, Rabbi, you have to help her. Rabbi says, sure, sure. Who's the landlord? He says, it's me. (laughs) He says, a person has no <laughs> a person who shuts his heart and closes his heart has no mercy and no compassion. Hashem will shut his heart to us. 
when we need the mercy and we need the compassion. And when don't we need the mercy and when don't we need the compassion? We need it now. And we need it here and now, presently. So therefore, it's a time to have mercy and go beyond the letter of the law. Now, that's argument number two, very compelling argument. Now the Alter Rebbe is going to add a third argument, a compelling argument. Because up until now he was discussing in order to evoke the mercy from heaven, the help that we need from heaven today, here and now, and everything that we have and everything that we do and our success and our life and our health and my family's health, and to guarantee the future, he's giving us a compelling argument to give tzedakah, even when the law states you're not obligated to, to go beyond the letter of the law. Now he's going to give a third reason, a compelling reason, because of the mending that we have to do for the things that we did in the past. We have to take care of our past. We have to mend our past. We have to take responsibility for our past. And since we all have a past, we all have our skeletons in the closet, and we all need mending, we all need healing, and what's the best healing? Tzedakah. Therefore, we can't give enough of tzedakah. So even if you're not obligated to give, but for your health, is there anything you won't do for your health? The proof is in the pudding. A person would bankrupt himself. We live in the largest concentration of world-class hospitals probably in the world, here in the Upper East Side. People travel here from all over the world. There's nothing a person won't do for his health. You undergo painful procedures, you bankrupt yourself, you beg, borrow, steal, you do anything. So we know that being healthy is the most important thing. When you realize that your spiritual health, which is a thousand times more important than your physical health, and that leads to physical health. The healthier you are, the more vibrant you are spiritually, that will translate also into physical health. So when you realize that we have all these wounds that we've inflicted on ourselves, and that the best medicine, the most powerful medicine, the best therapy, is tzedakah, then I'll give and give and continue to give and give even more and give way beyond my means and give even when the Torah says you don't have to give. So, so since we all need this healing, now Rebbe is going to argue to this community. Why are you limiting yourself? Why? That means you don't understand, you don't appreciate what giving tzedakah is. You think you're helping the other person. You're helping yourself. This is your medicine. This is the best cure for every, anything that ails you. Anything, anything that you need, anything that ails you, this is the best cure. All this, however, affects only the future, the ritual that, however, it knows, and the present as well, causing one to give, and to give until the recipient is equal with you. There is, however, an aspect of tzedakah that also affects the past, and the Rebbe Shlitaev, causing one to give to an even greater degree than what he keeps for himself, since this is to secure the rectification and atonement of his sin. He's saying the first two reasons that we just learned is reason enough to make me give that my friend should be equal to me. Now the third reason is going to compel me to give my friend even more than I give myself. Why would I give my friend more than I give myself? The Torah says your, your brother should live with you. Why would I give my brother more than I give myself? Why? After all, furthermore, 
There is not a righteous person upon earth who does good always and does not sin. And Zakah atones and protects against misfortune and the like. Charity is thus an actual care for body and soul, with respect to which it is written, skin for skin, a limb for a limb, and all that a man has he will give for his soul, i.e. to save his life. Setting a limit to the amount one distributes for charity is thus just as unthinkable as limiting the sum one would spend in order to be cured and to stay alive. So there's a concept where a person, we find the expression in the Torah, mishpatu tzedakah, judgment and charity. Biyakov, atasisa, in Jacob, you made. The idea of association of justice and charity, and justice coming first, is that a person judges, what do I need for myself? What do I need to survive, my basic necessity? And the rest to give away to tzedakah. In other words, instead of just giving 10% or 20%, we're talking about in the country. You keeping 10% for yourself. Taking what I need to live. Who is this person? What was his name? Him and his partner own, own all the duty-free shops in, all over the world. The airports. He was worth billions of dollars. And for decades he was giving... He gave all his money away anonymously until, because of the IRS, he had to report it and it was exposed. It came out into the open. He had a family, I think five children. He kept for himself, he was an Irishman actually, wasn't Jewish, he kept for himself five million dollars, him and his family, and he gave his billions, he gave it all. Over. He says, how many steaks can I eat? How many pair of shoes do I need? How many suits can I own? I have enough, five million. <laughs> Thank God, what, 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 I have what I need. You know, he, he didn't spoil his kids, raise them normal. He says, why, why should, do I deserve all this money? Why am I, am I better than anyone else? Why did God give me all this money? And he used his business sense. He would research which charities he would give. He would give those charities where 80, 90% went to the charity and 10% overhead, not those charities that had 90% overhead and 10%, if you're lucky, made it to the charity. He used his sharpness, his business acumen, to discover which charities he believed, believed in and were doing a good job. But this attitude, this is the idea of mishpat. You make a judgment. Like Avram. Avram was a billionaire. Abraham. But he made a judgment. What do I need? What do I need for myself? I need to survive, to eat, to live. And the rest, he generously gave and shared. So if a person real, so then that's the idea. I'm giving my friend more than I give myself. I'm keeping for myself a small portion, and the overwhelming majority I'm giving away, because I don't need it. What do I need it? Because when you realize that it's, that not only I don't need it, when you realize that the tzedakah is my cure and my medicine, it's the best medicine in the world, the cure for all my ailments, and the source of life and health spiritual health and material health and then I can't give enough. I give way beyond. The Torah obligates me, my brother should live with me. That's an obligation. But when you realize that tzedakah is my cure, there's no limit. When it comes to cure, to medicine, there's no limit. 
all bets are off. It's not, not equal. I'll give much more. I'll give my, my brother will get much more than what I keep from myself. So he's reversing the whole thing. Instead of, I'm not asking you, he says, that you should give the Jews in Israel at least what you give yourself. I'm asking you to give the Jews in Israel more than you give yourself. Oh, this is it's a tall order, but it's a compelling argument. Argument number three. Now we come to argument number four. Al-Tarebi is relentless. He keeps on building it up. Argument number four. How much more does this apply when we are believers, descendants of believers, in the fact that charity is nothing other than a loan to the Holy One, blessed be He. As it is written, He who is gracious unto the poor lends unto Hashem, and He will repay him his good deed. Twofold. It says, when you give tzedakah, Hashem says, really, it's my responsibility. God says, I'm the creator. I have a responsibility to feed my, my creations. So when you're giving tzedakah, you're giving it to my behalf. You're lending me money. God says, you're lending me money. And you can sleep like a baby at night. You don't need a guarantor. <laughs> when you lend God money, it's His. When you, God we trust. Right, the God we trust. It's in the dollar bill. So when, when you say, God says, you're lending me money, not only will I pay with interest, I pay it back double. And not only in heaven I'm going to pay you. No. When you lend to a poor person, I'm going to pay you double in this world. I promise you, you're lending me and I have to pay you back. And I'm going to pay you back. Repay. The man that he says, no one ever got hurt by giving tzedakah. It's a guarantee. Hashem guarantees. Give tzedakah. I will repay you. And especially when you're helping a poor person. You are lending me because you work, you're my agent. It's, you're giving it to me to give to the poor person. And I promise I'm going to pay you. You can take it to the bank and pay you in this world and double. The performance of none of the commandments is rewarded in this world except for charity because it is beneficial to creatures as is written at the end of the first chapter of Kedushan. The Talmud says that there is no reward in mitzvot in this world with the exception of the mitzvah of tzedakah. Why is the mitzvah of tzedakah an exception? If there's no reward of a mitzvah in this world because this world is too small, too finite to contain the reward that we deserve for even one single mitzvah. So why is tzedakah the exception? Such a great mitzvah, why is it the exception? The reward should be also, like all other mitzvahs in the world to come, spiritual reward. The answer is because the mitzvah of tzedakah, you benefited someone in this world. You physically benefited someone. You, you saved someone who was starving to death. You saved their life. You helped someone. So therefore the reward also has to be commensurate. Hashem will physically, since it was a physical benefit, when you do a mitzvah, you're doing something spiritual, you're doing something godly. So the reward will also be a godly reward, a spiritual reward in the world to come. But since tzedakah, you benefited a human being, you physically benefited someone, tangibly benefited someone, the reward will also be commensurate, that you'll see a, a tangible benefit, a tangible reward. In addition to your spiritual reward, you'll also see a physical benefit, a tangible, practical benefit. So therefore, if you give tzedakah, Hashem will repay you physically, not just repay you in the world to come. Spiritual, spiritual repayment. You'll daven nicely. You'll have, you'll have a sense of God. No, you'll be physically, Hashem is going to compensate you. Physically. 
You'll get back your money. So you're not losing anything. It's the best investment. Where do you get better returns? Companies today come and go. But Hashem is promising you. You get anything better than that? You know, we've been under the same management 5,775 years. Hashem is rely on him. Now, why does the Alter Rebbe start out that there's no reward of a mitzvah in this world? Why is that relevant to our conversation? Let's say there was a reward of a mitzvah in this world. All that matters here is that tzedakah, the reward for tzedakah is physical. Does it bother me that if the, if the other mitzvah also also physically reward? Why? How does it enhance the argument? He's trying to make a compelling argument that I'm asking you to give tzedakah to go beyond the letter of the law even though you're not obligated to follow the law of a chayyeh, to, to give life to your brother with you because you are destitute so you have no obligation to help your brother. But why is it important for the Alter Rebbe to say, so he's making a compelling argument because when you give tzedakah, you're lending Hashem and Hashem promises you a reward and the reward will be physical. So what do, what do I care if the other 612 mitzvot, uh, the reward is also physical? Why does Alter Rebbe have to get into the whole discussion? And even though there's no reward for mitzvot in this world, nevertheless, there is a reward for tzedakah. You should have just said, and the reward for tzedakah is physical, is tangible. Why, why bring in the discussion of other mitzvot? Why is that important there? Are we discussing reward for mitzvot? So the Rebbe explains. Because the compelling argument is, the Rebbe is saying, you want success in business. You want success. You want to make sure you can feed your family in abundance. You want success. I'm telling you, give your last penny. Give to tzedakah. Hashem is promising you. You're lending to Hashem. You're investing with Hashem. Hashem is promising you returns. 200% returns. On your investment. Physically. So a person can say, listen, Rebbe, it's very nice. But you know, I prefer to put on tefillin. Maybe I'll put on tefillin, Hashem will reward me with a good livelihood. Maybe I'll sit and study Torah, Hashem will reward me with a good livelihood. Why are you telling me specifically that I should go and give tzedakah? In order to, to earn a good livelihood, a good living. So that's what the Alter Rebbe is saying. This is the only option. You don't have any other option. Because any other mitzvah you'll do, your reward will be in heaven. I'm giving you a compelling argument that you want to make sure that Hashem will reward you in this world, that you should be blessed with abundance in, in Parnassan to earn a good living. There's only one avenue. The only avenue open to you is tzedakah. Therefore, give tzedakah and give in abundance and give beyond and give beyond the letter of the law. Obligated, not obligated. Because this is the only avenue open to you. That's why he's bringing it. Okay? Compelling argument number four. Now we have compelling argument number five. The final argument. Also, one should be concerned about punishment, heaven forfend, when one's companions associate for the sake of a mitzvah and he does not join them. This would be the case if one were to absent oneself when the other members of one's community were joining forces for the sake of the charitable cause under discussion. This argument he's coming to argue even if, let's say, a person already fulfilled Alter Rebbe's directive. He gave beyond the letter of the law. Let's say he followed the first four compelling arguments. They convinced him. And he gave. 
he gave beyond the letter of the law. Not only did he give as much as he helps himself, he gave even more than he helps himself. And he gave generously. So now he knows that God will protect him. He knows that just like he's not being careful and following the strict letter of the law, he's going beyond the letter of the law. He had mercy, he didn't close his heart. He knows Hashem will have mercy on him. He, he also gave generously because he wanted, he gave without any, beyond any calculation, more so than even gave to himself because he wanted the medicine. He knew that this is the best cure for all ailments, past and present. And he knows that it's the best investment. He, he gave tzedakah, he's lending money to Hashem. Hashem is guaranteeing, guaranteed returns. The best investment tool. There's no mutual fund in the world that can guarantee what Hashem can guarantee. And Hashem guarantees. <laughs> you lend money, you give money to the poor person, I guarantee you double, and it'll be material and tangible. So he fulfilled all of this. Already. Now the Alter Rebbe is sending his emissary to collect money. I already gave. You want me to give again? I already went beyond the letter of Allah. I did everything that you asked me. The Rebbe says, wait a minute. Yes, you gave. But you can't exclude yourself from the community. Now that the whole community is mobilizing and giving for this particular cause, just because you gave yesterday and the day before and you fulfilled everything that I asked of you and way beyond the le- you went way beyond the letter of the law, don't be the odd man out. Don't be the only person out. If the whole community is uniting and doing a mitzvah and you're the only one out, then it's even a question of a punishment person who excludes himself from the community, you really you don't want to stand out that way. Because when we are part of a community, the Hashem looks at us differently. Because when we're part of the community, we all smell like roses. We all look wonderful. The, the whole is greater than the sum total of its parts. The Jewish whole is beautiful. When you start looking at every individual, isolate an individual, start looking at him individually, uh, things could look a little, not look so pretty anymore. And that's why it says that a person should always pray in the community with a minion. Because in a minion, the word in Aramaic for a community, for a minion, for a kokorum is tzibur. Tzibur is an acronym for three Hebrew words. The three Aramaic words. Tzadikim, Beninim, Rishoyim. Three Hebrew words. Righteous ones, evil ones, and average ones. Because when you join the community, when you plug into the energy of Klal Yisrael, the Jewish whole, Hashem looks at us wonderful. We look wonderful. We smell like roses. And therefore Hashem will answer, grant our prayer, grant our wishes. But when you come to Hashem as an individual, Hashem starts looking at us Individually, individually, we don't measure up. We don't look so pretty. We will have our defects, we will have our faults, our handicaps, our limitations. So the whole community is mobilizing and gathering together to do a mitzvah together, to do something noble together. It's not a question, you're obligated, not obligated. The whole community is joining forces to do something good and you're standing on the side and not getting involved and say it's none of my business. I already took care of my obligations. 
Okay, it means you're looking at yourself as an individual. Yes, individually you took care of your obligations. That's way beyond the letter of the law. And you followed all these recipes out the Rebbe gave. But in the meanwhile, you're excluding yourself from the whole community. The whole community is present. Hashem looks at you and He says, hey, I see someone missing here. Oh, you want to approach this as an individual? I already gave. I gave in the office. <laughs> I already gave. Oh, you want to approach this as an individual? Hashem will look at us as an individual. Once Hashem puts us under the microscope as an individual, things don't look so pretty. And we're punished because how dare we exclude ourselves from the community? Are we so much better than anyone else? Are we so much different than anyone else? The whole community, the Jewish people are gathering to do something noble, do something good. Why are you the odd, why are you the odd man out? Why are you the only one that's not present? So therefore, even if you already gave, Everyone is gathering and everyone is coming together for this mitzvah. Give again. Compelling argument number five. As is known from the words of our sages of blessed memory, we teach that standing aside in such circumstances is an instance of an absence for which one cannot again be counted. King Solomon says that there's certain crookedness that you can't fix. For example, a person forgot to read the Shema too late. You missed the boat. You missed the train. You missed your flight. There's nothing you can do. You can't make it up. It's finished. And, and then there's a chisarin le'yuchal There's a lack which you cannot fulfill. What's the lack you can't fulfill? Talmud explains. King Solomon is referring to when the whole community gathers to do a mitzvah, to do a good deed. And you don't show up. And you're not present. You don't participate. That's a lack that you can't fill. And it evokes negative energy in your direction. And it can lead to punishment, it can lead to something negative, negative consequence. You don't want to put yourself in that position. It's not wise, it's not smart, it's not wise, it's not good, it's not healthy to put yourself in that position. To be the odd man out when the whole community is doing something good together and you choose to stay out because I already gave and I took care of my personal obligations. Yes, you did. But you're also part of the community. And the community is mobilizing to do something good. You have an obligation to participate. You're not less than anyone else. May life be pleasant for those who give peace and marry and, and may blessing of all kinds of goodness rest upon them. Any act benevolently, all Hashem, toward the good and the upright. As is their wish, and as is the wish of the writer, who seeks their welfare with all his heart and soul. So firstly, the Alter Rebbe is uh, pleading with Hashem that he shouldn't even have to write such a letter. He should bless this community and everyone in the community. They should have abundance and they shouldn't have to worry. And shouldn't, God forbid, shouldn't be destitute and shouldn't even be poor and should be in a position to give and give generously. But he's saying, if you listen to my words, Hashem will bless you. And the key with the Rebbe is saying, and this is such an essential, essential letter, because it's not only addressed. This letter was incorporated into the book of Bainanim. It's not only addressed to those who are destitute. The Rebbe is telling us that we always have to be in a position of being givers. 
In life, you always have to be in a position of being a giver. Never look at yourself that you're so destitute and you're so poor that I'm a taker. That's a terrible, terrible place to be spiritually, mentally, psychologically, emotionally. He's talking to a poor, devastated community that are literally in the dumps. A devastated. And Al Tarabi is telling them, he's really encouraging them. Don't look at yourself as, as being on the receiving end. Look at yourself as givers. You are capable of helping another community. Yes, you may have to borrow to do that. But you're borrowing for yourself. So if you're borrowing for yourself, why is your brother any, any less than, than yourself? Treat your brother as love your fellow Jew like you love yourself. You're borrowing for yourself. Borrow to help someone else also. But it's so critical. It changes your whole view of yourself. Don't look at yourself as nebach. As I'm down in the dumps and as a, as a sorry case. You have to look at yourself as a giver. No matter how poor I am, no matter how destitute I am, I can help. And I'm in a position to help. And I'm in a position to give. And if you look at yourself that way and you act that way, it will turn your whole life around. You have mercy, Hashem will have mercy. You're a giver, Hashem will give you. Because, you know, we create our own realities in a way. You generate a certain energy. Through your attitude, through your approach. Al-Turabi is lifting up this community. He's giving them the greatest blessing. He's not beating up on them. Ah, oh, you're so poor, how dear, miserable, you're not giving tzedakah, you're so cheap. It's not what al is saying. al is talking to them like a brother, like a best friend. He's lifting them up. He's getting them out of, the, out of the mud. He's lifting them up. So you're givers. You're in a position to give. You're not, don't look at yourself as receivers, takers. You're givers and you're in a position. And, and that's so critical for a person's self-esteem and value and your whole attitude and your whole approach. And when you have that energy, that brings positive energy. When you have, that creates positive energy. Hashem will respond in kind. It's all a shift in focus, a shift in how you view yourself, a shift in your responsibilities. And it's not just physically. The same is true spiritually. A person could be impoverished spiritually. We all know our own situation. You don't have to do some... Many of us, we don't have to do deep soul-searching, even with superficial soul-searching. We know that we're spiritually impoverished and maybe even destitute. You think to yourself, you want to hide in a corner. Let me focus on myself. I'm going to worry about another Jew and help another person in their spirituality and get them to do a mitzvah and encourage them to do, learn a little Torah. When I know my own sorry, poor state, am I in a position to really be a light unto others when I'm in such darkness? To help others and when I'm myself, I can't even get my own act together. The Alter Rebbe is telling us in this letter, in this very critical letter, letter number 16, and we and we just reached the half point, the 32 letters, just reached the middle point. Now, the Rebbe is telling us in all circumstances, whether you're physically impoverished, spiritually impoverished, you always have something to give. Never give up, never despair, never look at yourself as hopeless. And God forbid, you have to always view yourself as in a position, I have what to give, and I have light to shed, and I can help someone. And... And when you have that attitude and you have that approach, Hashem will help you. And it can turn your whole life around. 
and make you rich. Not only rich, materially rich also, but spiritually rich. And emotionally rich and psychologically rich. And vibrant and wholesome and healthy. And put you in a position to give and give generously and give in abundance. And give to many. It's such, a, it's such a shift in attitude. That's why he gives five reasons. One reason and another reason and a third reason and a fourth reason and a fifth reason. One compelling argument after the other. To shift their whole attitude, their whole mindset, their whole... Because they were like in a quagmire. They, they looked at themselves as pitiful. What are we? Who are we? Look at our situation. We're, we're so pitiful. He's lifting them up. Turn them into Givers. You have so much to contribute. You have so much to give. You have so much. He's so needed. He's so necessary. You know the story with the uh, these two people were traveling together, and they were caught in the blizzard. And uh, this one of them was very powerful, very strong person. The other one was very weak. And they were in danger of freezing to death. They were exhausted, they were lost in the forest, and the woods. And, and the strong person stayed up all night rubbing with snow, rubbing the weak person, keeping him awake. Because if you fall asleep, it's the end of you. And in the morning, they were rescued. And the weak person thanks his companion. He says, you know, he saved my life. If he hadn't been there all night rubbing me and taking care of me, I would have died. So his companion says, no, no, I have to thank you. You saved my life. Because by me sitting all night and rubbing you, I stayed awake. <laughs> you saved my life. So, without the Rebbe is saving, saving the life of this community. He's helping this community. Because now they feel needed. Now they feel they can do something. They're important, they're critical, their tzedakah is critical. They're in a position to give, they're in a position to help, they're in a position to help a Jew who's even less fortunate than them. He changed their whole mindset. He elevated them, he lifted them up to a whole different place. And when you, when you live in such... From their quagmire, he elevated them, and then the light could shine, then they can receive the blessing, they can absorb the blessing, they can open up, they can expand... The Rebbe did hear something so kind and merciful and loving and beautiful. He's not beating them over the head on the contrary. He's, it's such a blessing. It's showing them a different approach by changing their whole attitude, how they view themselves, how they view their mission in life, their purpose in life, and their ability to do good in life. Baruch Hashem, we finished the, reached the half point of the letters. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.